You're listening to 3CR Radio. And you are indeed on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we chat with queer cultural studies expert, Dr. Joshua Portsias. Peaches and Dylan from the Vixen Collective join us. And we chat with Western Sydney novelist, Peter Pilates. 3CR. Well, Dr. Joshua Portsias is a lecturer and researcher at the University of Melbourne, with academic expertise in post-aids cinema, bareback porn, biopolitics and health ethics. And Joshua begins our interview by defining post-aids cinema. So I, I sort of work with the term post-aids cinema, uh, mostly in relation to thinking about what the AIDS crisis sort of did for cinema in a lot of ways, particularly in terms of, uh, you know, in, in terms of gay and queer representation. So the AIDS crisis kind of, you know, came, came along at a very particular point in time um, and a particular point in time in the, the kind of, you know, trajectory, I suppose, of queer and gay representation as well. And it had, it had an incredible, incredible impact, obviously, um, quite, a, quite a sort of, you know, um, pernicious and pointed impact, not only, uh, you know, uh, not like not only in terms of what it, what its kind of impact was on, um, you know, on, on sort of risk groups or whatnot, um, including including gay men, of course, but um, particularly in terms of the way that um, governments and societies, uh, you know, had um, had other impacts on uh, on on risk groups as well, and on on um, you know gay people's ability sort of to kind of get through it. So there was there was this kind of really sort of you know pernicious moment. Um, that the AIDS crisis came along. It was, you know, the years of um, in the US and the UK, Reagan and Thatcher, um, and a kind of, you know, a, a conservative pushback to a lot of the um, to a lot of the sort of wins um, of the 1960s and the 1970s. So, in this moment of, of this conservative pushback, we also had, you know, this um, this kind of, you know, terrifying, mysterious new disease that was um, that was kind of ravaging ravaging the community. Um, as the kind of years went went along through um, through through the AIDS crisis as well, um, there was you know in in a lot of sense in a lot of senses and and this isn't just kind of limited to to cinema, but people who were producing works, whether they be you know um, visual artists or musicians or writers, um, there was a kind of real sense of urgency um, to to get work out and to get work out that you know, in many cases was informed by the, the AIDS crisis and informed by the particular experiences people were having. Um, so we, we have this kind of notion of, of the AIDS film, right? Um, there's the, the, sort of, the sort of notion of the, you know, maybe daytime TV kind of film representing um, AIDS or sort of dealing with, with AIDS. And we can think about, say, you know, Philadelphia, right, as a really kind of um, probably the most well-known example, I suppose, of this sort of almost like straight down the line AIDS film, right? Um, where there's a very clear sort of you know um, you know protagonist. Uh, there's there's a kind of clear sense of, um, of of you know people who are who are victimized, right? Um, in in those kinds of films, but the AIDS crisis also um, you know uh, amongst amongst queer artists and queer filmmakers produced a real sense of needing to um, take on our own representation ourselves, right? Um, in order to, in order to sort of wrestle back, um, 
some of those kind of constructions of images that were being produced by uh, by, by homophobes, you know. Um, so there was a, a huge kind of outflowing of uh, of works that were produced, um, you know, by uh, by by gay and queer people at the time. Um, in, in relation to AIDS, uh, and a lot of a lot of this was, uh, you know, it was termed by by B. Ruby Rich in the '90s, new queer cinema, um, and it was really kind of a, you know, a, a mode of representation that was that was experimental. Uh, at the same time, it was dealing quite openly with things like sex and sexuality and desire, uh, in ways that mainstream representations at the time sort of weren't. So that's that's kind of you know the. Uh, the, the AIDS crisis in terms of in terms of cinema, um, but when we talk about sort of post AIDS cinema, um, I'm really interested in I guess kind of what the um, in, in I, I'm sort of really interested here in what's invisible I suppose. So if we think about the AIDS crisis as being you know a moment of sort of you know um, intense loss for our community in a lot of ways. Um, when the when the uh, sort of you know when the uh, when antiretrovirals um, sort of you know were were broadly um, you know when antiretrovirals became sort of uh, widely used uh, and and sort of rolled out, it really sort of changed the experience of HIV and AIDS for a lot of people um, in in quite intense ways, and it did a lot of things to the way that people experience time, for example. It did a lot of things to the way that people experience HIV positivity, for example. Um, but what it also did was kind of produce a bit of a sense that the AIDS crisis, what it also did was kind of produce a bit of a sense that the AIDS crisis was over in certain ways. Um, and as we know, um, that, that wasn't the case. Is there a film that best represents that cusp just before we moved into post-AIDS cinema? Yeah, well, so I think I think one of the things about this this moment of of kind of post aid cinema is that it's not it's not something that we can clearly delineate in a lot of ways. It's kind of a bit of a um, a bit of a blurred line, if that sort of makes sense. So one of the things that I and this kind of came out through my um, through my PhD research, which I you know commenced many many years ago, right? Um, it was like the maybe 2013 or 2012 when I was starting to think about some of these ideas, and I was really sort of like drawn to, through this idea of like you know where where in film, where in television, where in representation can we see HIV and AIDS? I was sort of like why why is it why is it not spoken about but still such a broad and important you know part of particularly for, for the gay community, right? It's still such a such an important sort of aspect of our experience, our shared experience in our in our lives. So where is it? Why, why aren't we seeing it? Um, and then, you know, as I kind of was progressing through my through my sort of PhD research and I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of thinking about it and a lot of I was watching, you know, every every kind of you know reference to AIDS that I could sort of find, you know, anywhere, anywhere in film and TV. I started to notice there, be, there became a sort of swathe of films that started to get made and started to get released that were doing something that I thought was kind of really interesting um, in relation to HIV and AIDS. So there were films that were coming out in like 2013, 2014, 2015, and so on. Um, but all of them were in this kind of mode of nostalgia. Like they were all really nostalgically presenting a HIV and AIDS. 
So they were, you know, in many cases kind of reimagining or recreating the experience of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Um, and we can think about films like, you know, The Normal Heart, uh, which was a, a Ryan Murphy HBO, um, HBO film. Uh, we can think about films like Dallas Buyers Club, you know, which also, you know, re-represented the AIDS crisis. And these were obviously kind of, you know, relatively large um, successes as well. But what they were doing was kind of painting an, an image, I suppose, of HIV and AIDS as something that was far away. So it was either far away in terms of time, as in it was historical, you know, um, or sometimes films would be painted, uh, you know, uh, HIV and AIDS would be represented as something that's far away in terms of it being geographically far away, right, as being a thing that sort of, you know, perhaps existed um, here, you know, in the 80s and now exists elsewhere, right, in the global south usually or or something like that. So we have this kind of, yeah, this, this sense that sort of post-AIDS cinema displaces HIV and AIDS in certain ways. Now, I think some of that is, is uh, cha- ha- has been changing a little bit. And I think in a lot of ways, the, the sort of the rollout of, of what I call chemoprophylaxis, but what we would sort of just broadly just generally call PrEP, right, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, has, has sort of brought much more awareness, I think, uh, within, within the gay community at least, right, to, um, to experiences of HIV and AIDS and to the, the presence, right, of, of the virus in our everyday lives. So it sounds like people living with HIV AIDS in the here and now have been erased almost from cinema. Yeah, I mean, it, like in, in some ways that, that sort, sort of was the case, I think, through the, like between sort of the mid-1990s or the late 1990s through to, say, the 2010s or something, you know. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it's the, um, that there's a sort of overburden of representation that comes from the sort of, you know, um, the AIDS films of the 80s and 90s that were, you know, depicting particular modalities of living with HIV or, um, or of experiencing AIDS during the, you know, the crisis years um, that didn't necessarily match uh, the, the kind of contemporary lived experience that people with HIV have, you know. Um, but I, th- there's another sense to it too, you know, if you are a filmmaker or a film studio, <laughs> um, that the, you know, the AIDS crisis is this, uh, intense and immense and very visually overdetermined, um, experience, you know, um, that HIV as a, as a sort of, you know, chronic, um, chronic condition that's easily manageable, right. Um, doesn't, doesn't kind of, you know, visually <laughs> lend itself to those kinds of, um, those kinds of kind of, you know, intense storylines or intense representations. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Dr. Joshua Portsillas on 3CRs in your face. It's interesting because one of your areas of research, of course, is bareback sex. Uh, and of course, bareback sex during the AIDS crisis was something that was, you know, not represented in mainstream film at all. Now we have a, a porn industry that's almost become mainstream. What are your thoughts on all of that? And what's your research telling you? Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. So, um, so as a part of my, as a part of my PhD research, I, again, I was kind of, you know, I was, I was, I was looking, there, there was like this empty void of, repre- of, of kind of representations or references to HIV and AIDS in, in visual, in contemporary visual media, 
right? And I was like, where, where is it? Where, where, where are these kind of fictionalizations occurring? And what can I look at to try and to try and tease them out um, as as objects of analysis to think through? Um, and you know, it was around the same time that there was a yeah, you know, quite a concerted shift towards bareback porn. Um, in uh, you know in, in gay pornography, um, to, to, I mean, as you're right, you know, to, to the extent um, sort of today where uh, we could really say that bareback porn would be kind of the norm in in, in a lot of gay porn as well, um, which is quite interesting because you know there was there was also kind of a really concerted shift as a part of public health initiatives, um, you know, through the 1980s and 1990s um, towards kind of mandating condom use in porn as well. So there's this kind of, you know, as, as I was kind of really seeking out references to and engagements with ideas of the virus and ideas of, um, of, of sort of seropositivity in, in visual culture, bareback porn was kind of there, you know, and it was one of the few spaces in a lot of ways where uh, ideas about HIV were openly kind of uh, engaged with, sometimes fetishized, uh, sometimes you know, kind of represented and thought through in um, increasingly creative way, ways as well. Um, and I thought that was a really sort of interesting um, aspect of kind of the, the the ways in which we're able to um, discuss and think through things that have uh, in many ways kind of, um, you know, constrained or restricted our own forms of self-representation as well. Another area of expertise that you have in research is biopolitics. Define biopolitics for us. Yeah, well, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to be a lecturer right, right now to you, <laughs> and I'm trying to think of ways to uh, to define to define biopolitics that um, that don't that don't make me just sound like a lecturer. Um, <laughs> obviously, that's my that's my job. Um, uh, but so. Uh, biopolitics is associated with a really sort of, you know, um, a famous theorist called Michel Foucault. He was a, he was a French theorist and he was writing, um, you know, from, from the sort of, you know, 1960s until, until his death, um, in the 1980s. And, and he actually died, he died of AIDS in the 1980s, but a lot of his earlier work, and that's a lot of the work that people are kind of often most familiar with has to do with ideas of power, really, and ideas of kind of surveillance um, and ideas of, uh, you know, ideology. So he, he looked a lot at the way that we, for example, kind of, you know, um, control ourselves, the way that, um, that we sort of self-surveil in a lot of ways and how that is a form of power, even though we wouldn't necessarily think of it straight up as being a form of power in the same way as kind of having a police you know, policeman at you with a with a baton, right? But you're still kind of you, you're self surveilling, uh, in a lot of ways, you know. Um, so he he was writing about the way that power operates in society, right? And one of the things that, and towards the end of his life, he was really thinking about the way that uh, there was a shift at a particular point in time, and for for him, um, it was kind of thinking through the difference between. Um, epidemics and endemics, really, and thinking thinking about how society sort of deals with disease in a lot of ways. But he was writing about how there was this shift in the way that power worked um, from what he called, you know, um, sovereign power, which was the control over death, like the control, the control of the population through the threat of death, 
to biopower, which he saw as the management of life in the population. So rather than kind of thinking about the king as having all of this power to be able to choose who lives or dies, you know, the, the threat here is the threat of, of kind of death, right? The king is able to take, take a person's life. That is the, the power that is invested, right, in the king. Um, he says that there was this particular shift, uh, you know, around the 18th century towards um, thinking about how to manage the population and manage the, like, general health of the population, all about sort of, you know, productivity, I suppose, and, econ- and economics. Um, and that's what that's kind of what he termed biopower. So it's a particular kind of uh, frame of management, and it's so normalised, obviously, now, you know, hundreds of years later. It's incredibly, incredibly normalised. It's sort of just the way that we think, really. But but for him, he was writing historically about how there was this, yeah, this, this shift towards governments kind of surveilling the entire population and managing the entire population through the management of various ideas around around the body, around health, um, uh, and, and around the, the sort of population, uh, population level itself. Yeah. So, of course, that's very topical at the moment with the COVID pandemic. What are some of the main ethical issues around health privacy in the current era that you're most concerned about? Yeah. So, um, you know, sp- spending so much time thinking about the about HIV and about viruses <laughs> and about um, and about you know the, the the shift you know from from a kind of you know AIDS epidemic to to a sort of you know chronic um, chronic health condition managed health condition context and the way that we as a culture deal with that and the way that we politically deal with that um, and then all of a sudden coronavirus happens and completely upends the world as it as it has for so many people everywhere else obviously as well um some of the things that i'm kind of really um thinking through i suppose um is what happens afterwards um you know what happens once people you know perhaps once we find uh, a treatment or even indeed a vaccine what happens to people that um that, that, you know, um, were coronavirus positive? Um, how might those kind of forms of, of positivity um, shape, you know, the way that we deal with people and the way that people's lives unfold in the future? I think are some really interesting, um, interesting points there. I think as well, you know, particularly in relation to, to ethics and um, also in relation to uh, to sort of queerness and queer, queer identity and culture, there's kind of a lot of, a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, um, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. Um, if we think about sort of the way that, you know, um, queer family uh, often takes uh, very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, for example. But how so many of the uh, of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb um, as opposed to, you know, say, for example, um, uh, you know, many, uh, you know, single individuals who have shared 
you know, queer family, uh, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that, that kind of give them, um, give them life and give them, give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. Um, and sometimes, you know, those, those connections may be people they live with, people they love, people they know very well, but you can also sort of, you know, look to, um, you can look to kind of queer experiences of connection with total strangers, for example, you know, uh, and the way that sometimes they might be very sustaining um, and the way that we've talked about the, you know, um, the the potentialities, right, of those kind of, you know, engagements with strangers that can be very amazing and fulfilling and, and sort of life fulfilling in a lot of ways and, you know, something that we're that we're currently placing on hold, I suppose. Joshua, it's been absolutely fascinating hearing your insights. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thanks, James. Thanks so much for having me. 4 the, the sex work industry is yeah is essentially completely closed down, except for online work or you know remote services, which a lot of sex workers did uh, did move to pretty early in the in the pandemic within Victoria. And um, so I think that in terms of what Stage Four is doing, it's really just exacerbating the existing problems from previous stages. Uh, so <laughs> I guess the thing for sex workers is that although the restrictions are a lot firmer now, this has now been months and months where many sex workers in Victoria have been, you know, have not been working and have been unable to work. So the unprecedented impact on sex workers, uh, it's just, it's been really profound. It's really community in crisis. We're really struggling. I think that it's worth noting as well that, you know, it's a really hard time for everyone um, in Victoria at the moment, but sex workers do have some unique challenges that are compounded by the stigma that we that we experience, the, the licensing system in Victoria and, you know, the kind of intersecting marginalisations and oppressions that a lot of, um, a lot of sex workers within the community face. Of course, Fixin is Victoria's leading peer support and advocacy organisation, if you like, for sex workers. What are the major issues in this critical time that sex workers are raising with Fixin since stage four began? 
Yeah, so we're seeing things like, you know, just a general inability to buy food and and basic items. Um, people are unable to pay their bills, um, including essential utilities. Um, people are unable to access medical services and prescription medicines. And, of course, there's the impact of the loss of income, um, stress of extended isolation, um, and it's all it's all incredibly stressful. Uh, and really exacerbating uh, mental health problems for a lot of people. And, of course, that's something that we're seeing in a lot of communities right now. Um, I think people are feeling a bit a bit hopeless and uh, really want to know when this nightmare will be over. And, yeah, so, of course, the other, the other big one is homelessness and, and housing instability. Homelessness and precarious housing, it, it's always been a big issue for sex workers in Victoria, you know, the Victorian Equal Opportunity Act actually explicitly allows accommodation providers to lawfully discriminate against sex workers. And one thing, you know, a lot of people have talked about is how COVID uh, has sort of really exacerbated and exposed pre-existing inequalities. And we are seeing this play out in terms of sex work as well. So a lot of sex workers are facing, you know, huge financial stress at the moment. And this means more people facing homelessness and precarious housing um, so when you combine these, when you combine this with existing discrimination against sex workers, you, yeah, you have a real problem. Um, so the system's actually creating these extra barriers for sex workers to deal with what are already very stressful and complex issues. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think the other, the, the other thing that we're having come through a lot and that we're aware of is a really major issue is there has been, there's been issues throughout um, you know, the last several months with a lack of consistent and clear information being given to sex workers in Victoria from the government. And that has caused a lot of distress. And a lot of the work that Vixen's been doing in this time is, you know, doing our best to to make sure that people have access to clear, um, you know, to clear information um, on restrictions and on public health, as well as, uh, you know, harm reduction information from, from us and from Scarlet Alliance. The other thing that we are um, that we're dealing with is obviously we are now seeing um, not just sex workers, but throughout Victoria and particularly in Metro Melbourne, we are seeing now really high levels of policing. Um, and you know, I think it's it's pretty obvious that communities who are already over policed and uh, you know and or criminalised are particularly vulnerable when policing gets deployed as a primary public health tool in that way. And you know, sex workers as sex workers, we know that. Um, Policing and fines and punitive measures are, you know, are not actually a useful way to to achieve um, public health promotion. So that's you know that's something we are really concerned about. I think it really you know this is where um, you know connecting to what to what Peach has said about um, housing and and discrimination. This is a situation where existing laws in Victoria actually are making the pandemic much worse for sex workers. So the fact that we have this licensing system which you know, provides no support to sex workers and isn't intended to. It's you know, its intention is to is to control, uh, is to control sex work. Um, so we have the system where we have no support for sex workers. We have police as you know, as as key regulators or enforcers. Really complex rules with heaps of unnecessary red tape. And so that situation is then now, you know, compounding what is obviously a, you know, unprecedented crisis for sex workers and for, and for everyone in Victoria and, you know, the Australia and the world um, with COVID-19. But for us here in Victoria as sex workers, this is a, 
you know, a really horrible, um, very, uh, you know, very clear illustration of why we need licensing to go. You know, it can't, it can't go soon enough in Victoria or in Queensland as well for that matter, where they also have licensing. So I think the pandemic has really laid that very bare. Are sex workers telling Vixen that police are monitoring them more, even though they're not working? Look, we, we are aware of uh, we are aware of active policing within the community. Um, yeah, it, it's an issue. Yeah, I think though, you know, it's one of those issues where uh, any community that is that is over policed, um, generally speaking, you know, is seeing um, also that kind of increase in policing during this time. So. Yeah, especially with the introduction of a curfew. I think that's an issue for a lot of over-policed communities um, in Victoria. Are you finding that uh, the culture of government towards sex workers, especially during this pandemic, needs to change? I mean, you talked before about how there's a lack of clear information, there's inconsistent information at times coming from uh, the government. Is this because, uh, you know, of the partial criminalisation of sex work in Victoria, the licensing system, and just the stigma and the discrimination yeah. seems to be emanating even from government. I think that, um, you know, I mean, I guess I guess to be fair, I think that, you know, it's been a challenging time for people in lots of sectors to get a clear sense of how different restrictions impact them. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of sex workers specifically, I absolutely think it's a product of, it's a product of the licensing system, which, you know, is, we're talking about stigma from government, while well, the licensing system is it is in and of itself a form of discrimination. It, it discriminates against sex workers by exceptionalising us, singling us out, um, and and you know um, placing us under under these laws which which surveil and regulate us in these highly stigmatising, completely unnecessary ways. And yes, for some sex workers, mean that our work is fully criminalised. So, um, I, I definitely think that licensing absolutely creates a barrier to. Um, yeah, to the kind of level of, of partnership and communication that, you know, that sex workers would like to, in Victoria, would like to have with, with the government, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing that we've been working on throughout this process is to be, you know, and uh, having positive communications. Um, but we, you know, we need licensing gone to really, to really achieve, um, achieve that. And I think the situation for sex workers, if we had decriminalisation right now, would obviously still be very stressful because it's a global pandemic, but I think it would be we'd be in a in a much uh, stronger position to respond to it as a community. What percentage of sex workers do you think are unable to access federal government support during this time? Uh, I think that it would be pretty hard to kind of give a definite number on that, um, but you know, I, I suppose many sex workers aren't um, eligible for or or able to access those government benefits. So, you know, that's people with no ID uh, or no fixed address. Um, a lot of sex workers can't produce accurate or up-to-date financial records, um, you know, or they fear outing themselves to the state due to lifelong, um, you know, discrimination and stigma that that can lead to. So, you know, what we really need is some targeted financial relief for sex workers to, to respond to this, um, Scarlet Alliance and the state and territory member organisations, um, including Vixen Collective, have started an emergency fund for sex workers who aren't able to access government support. So the one we've got going now is actually the second fund. Uh, the first one raised over $100,000 for sex workers in need. Um, 
And this new fund is aimed at sex workers who are still under restrictions. And so right now that's Victorian sex workers. Um, and every week the funds are paid out to applicants, but we aren't able to help nearly as many people as we would like to. Um, but yeah, I'll just, I'll plug that. It's a chuffed.org, um, slash project slash sex work, sex worker support. Um, so I'm sure, um, James will be kind enough to, tweet that link out for us please do uh, yeah. but yeah every, every dollar goes to a sex worker in need um if you can't actually donate um you know i know it's a it's a tough time for a lot of people and often it's the poor helping the poor um but you know please uh share it with your cash up mates um that's a tell your mum about it tell you your mum. yeah <laughs> that's all very useful so yeah what are migrant sex workers telling vixen collective at this time it must be a very difficult time for them especially. Yeah, I think that um, the, you know, all of the issues um, that, you know, that that we've outlined so far are, you know, harder to deal with, um, you know, for people who, uh, for example, if somebody is a migrant worker and their visa status makes them ineligible for, you know, for federal government support, then, of course, the financial barriers they're facing at the moment are, you know, are that much uh, that much worse. Um, I think an issue that we have in Victoria as well is that because we don't have a funded peer organisation for sex workers, because Vixen Collective, you know, always has been and remains unfunded by by the government or anyone else, um, it means that um, it's it's that much harder to provide the level of um, in language services that it's so important, um, you know, that that we would be able to provide. So having funding would mean that we can actually have peer support workers, peer educators from different core communities who can actually do that work within their own communities and be paid to do it. So that's really important. Um, I think that's a bit of an issue, to be honest, is access to translated materials. Are you still in a situation where the government, the state government here, barely acknowledges the work that Vixen does, so it makes it so much harder to even open up a dialogue with them about the need to fund Vixen? Um, look, I mean, we have we have positive relationships with with parts of government um, in Victoria, but it's it's true that we don't have government funding, and that the situation is that sex workers in Victoria are you know are, are missing out on on something that you know that exists in, in every other part of Australia, which is a funded peer only sex worker organisation, um, able to provide services that only a peer only sex worker only organisation can. Um, so Victoria is lagging behind um, in that in that regard, and absolutely an important part of the, the outcome of the review into into the decriminalisation of sex work, um, and into you know the, the decriminalisation process as it progresses, um, you know through Parliament needs to be um, you know investment from the government in in funding a peer only sex worker organisation. Um, it's really essential. The last couple of times I've chatted with Vixen, the organisation's really highlighted that the terms of reference for Victoria's sex work review uh, mention the New Zealand model, which of course criminalises migrant sex work. Uh, where are the terms of reference at? Do they remain or have they been changed? So the, the terms of reference for the review are, are as they were, um, you know, when the review was announced in, uh, last year in late 2019. You know, I think, uh, so obviously... Vixen's position is very clear. Decriminalisation in Victoria has to be for all sex workers. So that's regardless of visa status, um, regardless of the form of sex work someone is doing, 
um, that's really essential. That's what decriminalisation is. It's for everybody. It's for all sex workers. Um, you know, there's no there's no grey area around that. Um, I think with the review in general, though, you know, the the reviews progressed um, since since Vixen last last uh, you know appeared on your show, James. Um, so it's still a you know it continues to be an exciting and scary time. And you know where we're at now is that at the you know um, towards the end of September. Um, you know, Fiona Patton, who's leading the review, of course, will make recommendations to the Minister for Consumer Affairs. Um, and, and then things will progress from there. So our role and, you know, our concern is it's been the whole time is that um, we're here to centre the voices of sex workers. You know, sex workers are the primary and, you know, by, by a wide margin, most important stakeholders in, in the review and in any decriminalisation process, because this is about our lives. Um, and uh, no one's more qualified than sex workers to talk about how um, sex work laws impact us um, in our work and in other parts of our lives. So the review, of course, is about how to implement decriminalisation. It's how, not if. So we'll be waiting with great anticipation, you know, as the as the process continues to go on over the coming many, many months that it will go on for. We'll be continuing our work. And just, you know, hoping to to see the review um, and, and indeed the Victorian government make good on this, you know, commitment to Victorian sex workers. Um, and we want to see the full decriminalisation of all forms of sex work in Victoria. It's really, it's really well overdue. It's long past time. So it sounds like Vixen's optimistic that even though the terms of reference haven't been changed, that the uh, recommendations uh, from the review won't be based on adopting a model like New Zealand's, which criminalises migrant sex work. It sounds like it sounds like you might have had some assurances from Fiona there. Um, I think that um, I I think so. We. We've been very clear in all our engagement with the review and, you know, our, our submissions, um, both our oral and written submissions, um, you know, that the criminalisation of, of migrant sex workers isn't acceptable and isn't part of decriminalisation. And we've been very clear in general about what decriminalisation is and isn't. And, um, you know, we we have a situation where the, where the you know, Victorian, Victorian Labor has you know, said in 2018, they've put it in their policy platform um, that, uh, you know, that decriminalisation is what we're looking at. Um, that's what the review says it's doing. So, um, you know, we'll be continuing to make sure that that's the case. How are you guys holding up personally? I mean, you're working on this review uh, and then you're supporting sex workers during a pandemic uh, without funding. How's it impacting on you both personally? I'll let you speak on the speeches um yeah <laughs> I suppose <laughs> I mean it it is um it's certainly taking up a fair bit of time um fortunately we don't really have anywhere else to be at the moment um but yeah absolutely it's um it's impacting us um and and everyone else um but I suppose what you know, sex workers and and you know and the queer community and whatever we're we're all very very used to supporting each other through crisis. Um, you know, mutual aid is uh, I think a really important part of our communities, um, and and we've seen this uh, historically through you know the the HIV AIDS crisis that sort of thing. Um, 
you know, how our communities come together and look after, look after each other, particularly, uh, when, you know, there isn't enough, uh, government support. Um, and yeah, so we're, you know, I, I think it's a hard time for everyone, but, um, I think, uh, we're all incredibly grateful for, um, the really strong communities that we have. So, yeah. Peaches and Dylan, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, James. 3CR. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Well, Peter Pilates is a novelist from Western Sydney and the author of Down the Hume and The Pillars. And Peter begins our interview by describing the influences Western Sydney has on his writing. I work a minimum wage job in Western Sydney in hospitality. Um, grew up in the area and I went to high school in the area. And, you know, there's this old cliched adage that you should write what you know, but I think the reason I write about Western Sydney is because I think it's in a place that's been kind of hard done by in terms of representation. I think there's a, some really bad ways it's been represented in the media. And I wanted to show the complexity and the beauty of it through my imagination. Yes, there's lots of themes of racism that come up in the mainstream media. Uh, to its exploration of Western Sydney. Yeah, I think especially for queer people, the dominant mode of representation of Sydney per se is this um, glittering emerald city, whereas I think Western Sydney is seen as this uh, other space that you shouldn't travel to or participate in. And there's uh, so many members of the queer community here all around us. Um, and it, they're just here, but we're kind of seen as maybe not as successfully successful as the people living in the glamorous parts of the city, which is weird because if you actually look at the people that are living in the in those areas of Sydney, most of them aren't actually from Sydney. So there's like people from Sydney who live in the suburbs that they grew up in and around 
and then there's kind of like uh, the inner Sydney gays who are probably all from country towns, you know, or from outside of Sydney. The mainstream political parties often describe Western Sydney as aspirational. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it is. Um, it's a, it's, and that's what actually makes it really, really interesting. But I don't think it's, I think there's this kind of um, dark taint to the term aspirational. And I think it's unfair to say that, you know, the communities in Sydney, all of Sydney, are aspirational. There's just different objects that perform that aspirationalism. So in Western Sydney, your aspirationalism might be performed by, um, you know, a cab chassis Hilux that's fully kitted out and, um, you know, a double-storey brick veneer duplex, whereas in the inner city, in the inner west, you perform your aspirationalism through being dining at the right places or being seen in an appropriately, you know, European-style car or, you know, you're reading the right kinds of books. So I think because Sydney is such an unaffordable city, even in the suburbs, the whole area is uh, aspirational. Recently, you tweeted, the more I read and study writing about fiction, the more I think that fiction is not the imagination run wild, but a philosophical worldview of the author. Can you flesh that out a bit more for us? Yeah, you know, like I think, so when you kind of create fiction, you create a world, and to create a world, you have to interpret certain aspects of it and put it down on the paper. Um there's this really ongoing debate about can a white person write an Aboriginal voice or can a rich person write a poor person and can you essentially write the other in terms of, um, you know, someone subaltern, someone that's a minority, someone that's got a lower socioeconomic and racial condition to you? And the answer to that is, the answer to that is, the question's wrong, if that makes sense, because fiction is like uh, made from the texts and philosophies that you've interpreted. And so when you create a world, you're saying, hey, this is my perspective, my take on the world through the position that I've born into, been born into. How would you describe your writing style? Well, I'm obsessed with first-person voice. Um, I love the first-person perspective and I try and find a voice first before I embark on any project, whatever it is. So um, maybe I'm not talented enough to write in third person. I don't know. But I think it's more kind of like a... I think of it like a painting style. And I guess the voice is very much uh, an expression of the soul of the person, isn't it? Yeah, and instrumental to or the soul of the character that I'm trying to create. And I mean that as character as in the different kinds of versions of myself I've been exploring in fictional worlds. Do you find that the characters that you focus on are kind of versions of yourself? Yeah, because I'm trying to explore myself within 
different kinds of Western Sydney. So in my first book, I tried to explore someone who was like a, a downbeat loser, whereas in my second book, I tried to explore someone who was aspirational. Your first novel was called Down the Hume. Your second novel was called The Pillars. It won the 2020 Premier's Multicultural Award in New South Wales. The Pillars is, at its core, about aspirationism and uh, it's about it's about gay conservatism and becoming a corporate gay sellout, really. Wow. Is that something, I guess that's something that must come up a lot for, for, for queers in Sydney, uh, especially around the corporatisation of the Mardi Gras? I mean, like, it's what's really heartbreaking about, you know, rainbow capitalism is the fact that all our rights actually came from radicals, you know. The only reason why we could have a conservative politician in the Liberal Party proposing to their boyfriend in Parliament is because the 78ers protested on the street and got arrested by the police and then had their names published in conservative newspapers of the time and then they all got fired. And now we've got, you know, some people, you know, being cheerleaders for capitalism, not understanding that their rights, that their freedoms to be assholes in public is based on, you know, these actual people who did really serious work. I get the profound sense that your strong sense of class consciousness uh, was something that became very apparent to you as a child. Would that be the case? Oh, yeah. yeah my mother's um, quite left-wing and my father's right-wing, but in a very old-style European way. Um, and I grew up in a working-class neighbourhood of Belmore and I was just thinking about growing up and I remembered one of my, in primary school, one of my friends dad's died at work and another friend's dad went to jail and my dad was unemployed growing up most of my life and I just assumed that that's what it was for people as a child I just assumed yeah like if you're a man your options are work yourself to death go to jail or be unemployed so you have a profound sense of not just equality, but inequality as well. Yeah, and but combine that with this kind of, I guess, you know, like we're all products of our socialisation as much as we try and rebel against it, but it was definitely my mother and my sister who gave me the tools of education and the tools of critical thought to engage in the world around me. Tell us how your novels explore themes around gender, especially femininity and masculinity. Uh, I really struggle with that in my novels because, you know, in the last two the last two novels, I wrote these horrible characters for their own reason, and they're both characters who are mired in modes of thinking that are predicated on, on 
terrible masculine identities and ideas. So in terms of writing the thought of these um, toxic men, it wasn't hard because what I did see them as was victims of, not victims, participants and um, agents of patriarchy. Your first novel, Down the Hume, uh, was critically acclaimed. When did you, do you remember, do you remember that moment when you decided, I'm going to write this novel, I'm going to make this novel work? I think, um, I think when you're a minority writer, um, which I am in some ways and I'm not in other ways, you're, you need permission to write a novel. And it was, I wrote this short story and I read it at, uh, at the Emerging Writers Festival in Melbourne. And then I got a card from a publisher and I was going to have a meeting with a publisher. And I said, before I had the meeting with a publisher, I met this man, I knew this man called David Henley and his partner Alice. And I said to them, oh, I'm going to pitch short stories to the, to the publisher because I knew that's what I could do. And then, you know, this much more experienced novelist and his publisher partner, they said to me, you know, just try writing a novel because it's more rewarding. And when they gave me the permission to do that, I know it's cliched in a very Oprah way, but I have to learn how to pronounce it in a way that isn't cliched, that I just did it. You're a strong supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. Can we expect to see themes around race come out in your future work? Oh, all my actually, if you look into my work now, there's a lot of themes of race and race. Like in the pillars, what happens is the uh, Greek gay guy pretends to be Albanian Muslim so he can stop a mosque from being built down the road from his house so the property values don't go down. Wow. Yeah, and it's a comedy. That's the best part of the pillars. So I guess uh, Islamophobia as well is a theme that comes out in your work? I think it's because of Western Sydney, you know. I just I can't. I can't not write, I can't live in Western Sydney and not write about racial inequality in all its forms, you know, and I can't live in Western Sydney and not write about racism, sexism and homophobia. It's just, it's impossible for me to exist in this world and not see that. Tell us about your next novel. Oh, okay. Um, so my last two novels were about toxic men and I'm really hoping that my next novel will be about a man that's actually just really sweet and really nice and queer. I might base the character on my partner. Who has oh, wow. this, um, yeah, he's got a very queer way of looking at the world, you know, where he just doesn't value people based on their status or aesthetics. Sydney does have that reputation, or gay Sydney does have that reputation, of really ranking people according to status. Would you say that's a fair comment? And what's all that yeah. about? Is it about you money? Know, at its core, it's about insecurity, right? You know, once I was at a party and um, I was in one of those Sydney apartment parties, you know, and I introduced myself and I said, oh, 
I work in hospitality. And that person quickly changed the conversation to my shoes, you know, and talking about the objects that I was work was wearing. But then as I was leaving that party, the host said, thanks for sending us your novel. And I saw that person's face change, you know. It was a real classic Sydney moment. You know, and that must rile you as a person that has such a strong sense of, 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 of class and, and inequalities around class. That must have riled you. It pissed me off because I think, um, I just think, you know, regardless of, like, regardless of someone's job, appearance, status, we all live such rich, complex inner lives and to judge people like that takes away all our agency. Absolutely. Peter, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. James, it's always lovely to talk to someone on the radio. Thanks so much, especially when you can't even see what I'm wearing. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and that was novelist Peter Pilates. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us out is Jimi Hendrix, Castles in the Sand. As she slams the door in his trunk of face And now he stands outside And all the neighbors start to gossip and drool He cries, oh girl, you must be mad What happened to the sweet love you and me had? Against the door he leans and starts a scene And his tears fall and burn in garden green And so castles made of sand Fall in the sea eventually. A little Indian brave who, before he was ten, played war games in the woods with his Indian friends, and he built a dream that when he grew up he would be a fearless warrior, Indian chief. Many moons passed, and more the dream grew stronger. Till tomorrow he would sing his first war song and fight his first battle. But something went wrong. Surprise Ted killed him in his sleep that night And so castles made of sand Melts into the sea Cause she was crippled for life And she couldn't speak a sound And she wished and prayed She could stop living So she decided to die She drew a wheelchair to the edge Of the shore and to her legs She smiled, you won't hear me no more But then a sight she never seen Made her jump and say Look, a golden winged ship Was passing my way And it really didn't have to stop It just kept on going And so castles Made of sand Slips into the sea Eventually